We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This season, we've covered a lot of different fanatical groups. But today, I want to talk to you about one that's unlike any of the rest. They're easily the most prevalent group that we know of. They're probably the most feared group online. They brook no criticism of their leaders, and they worship their sacred texts with fanatical fervor. There's millions and millions and millions of them. Children as young as eight or nine have fallen into their grasp, and even the elderly are known to submit. One of them might be in your workplace or your neighborhood, maybe even in your family. In fact, I bet you might be one yourself. I'm, of course, talking about the stands. I almost named my daughter's middle name Taylor, so... Oh, my goodness. It's being called a swift quake. He's almost like my personal therapist. I mean, it actually caused the equivalent of a 2.3 magnitude earthquake. Leave Brittany alone! There's the Beliebers and the Bayhive, Bronies, Gleeks, and Hoovians, the BTS Army and the Bardi Gang, Smilers, Slurpers, Selenators, and Stans, Swifties for the under-16 crowd, and Parrot Heads for the over-60. We live today in a world of fractured fandoms that people participate in with cult-like adherence. Thousands of years after God commanded Moses to not worship any false idols, in almost 1,500 years after Muhammad went into Mecca and smashed the idols in the Kaaba, we've become a society, a globe of idol worshippers. We literally even call them idols. So that is what we're going to be talking about today in our final episode of our cult season. What's the relationship between our pop culture obsessions and religion? How deep can this run? And at what point does it go from being harmless entertainment and become something more sinister. I'm Marshy Mann, and this is Commons. More after the break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world, and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, 
you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Now, if we're to look for the Ur fandom, the one that can help us best understand how we got to where we are today, Harry Potter might be the best place to start. Obsessive fans existed well before J.K. Rowling ever put pen to paper. But the difference between Harry Potter and, say, Beatlemania or Star Wars is that the rise of Potterdom coincided with the emergence of the internet. Back in the mid-2000s, Pottermania was in full swing. His name dons the cover of the wildly popular books. It's Harry Potter, and if you haven't heard of him, then you probably don't have a middle school child. How long have you been waiting for this book, ma'am? I've been waiting 211 days. I've had a countdown since I found out it was coming out that night on J.K. Rowling's website. And there was a thriving ecosystem of fan sites and forums where Potterheads debated what houses they would be sorted into which characters would live or die, and even wrote their own fanfiction, some of which could get a little lurid. But no matter how obsessed certain fans got, there was always one corner of the fandom that they could point to in order to prove that, hey, at least we're not crazy like them. That would be the Snape Wives. The Snape Wives have now become one of the most notorious and most misunderstood examples of obsessive fandom that we have in the internet era. Back in the mid-2000s, they were the butt of a thousand jokes on Potter-themed forums and message boards. And today, they've become a meme, a shorthand for people who take their fandom to the most extreme limits. On some corners of the internet today, they're even accused of being a cult. The Snape wives were women who believed that they were married to Severus Snape, the potions master from Harry Potter. I can teach you how to bewitch the mind and ensnare the senses. I can tell you how to bottle fame, brew glory, and even put a stopper in death. Now I can hear what you're thinking, but Severus Snape isn't a real person. He's a fictional character. Surely they must have been joking. But according to Dr. Zoe Alderton, a scholar of new religious movements at the University of Sydney, they absolutely were not. It's not an easy story to tell because I want to take it seriously, but it's something that immediately strikes people as very silly and very ridiculous. Zoe was a major Harry Potter fan as a teenager, and she remembers the ridicule that was piled on the Snape wives online at the time. And back in 2014, she decided to write a paper about the Snape wives, or Snapists, as they preferred to be called. And she came to what might be a somewhat startling conclusion. The Snapists 
are best understood as an actual religion. So who exactly were they? Well, the first thing to understand is that they were very big fans of Severus Snape, especially as portrayed by Alan Rickman in the Harry Potter movies. Should anyone, student or staff, attempt to aid Mr. Potter, they will be punished in a manner consistent with the severity of their transgression. They thought that he was a very domineering master. They found him very exciting. And there were three of them, Rose, Tanya, and Conchita. By all accounts, they were all fairly ordinary middle-aged women. They had husbands and children. Rose and Tanya lived in the U.S., while Conchita was in the Netherlands. But they were united by their belief that Snape wasn't really a character from the Harry Potter world. Instead, he was a spiritual being who actually inspired J.K. Rowling to write the books. And these three women were all able to get in touch with this cosmic spirit. He's someone who can come and visit them in their home and give them guidance in their lives. But their relationships with Snape went far beyond spiritual guidance. The reason why they were called Snape Wives isn't just because they like him a lot. It's because they actually released photographs of themselves in photoshopped wedding ceremonies with Snape. And they actually conducted these ceremonies in their own homes. And while this might sound a bit strange, Catholic nuns have wedding ceremonies believing themselves to be the brides of Christ. It's kind of like you take this sort of generic idea of a slightly angry, slightly vengeful God, swap that kind of abstract figure for Professor Snape as portrayed by Alan Rickman and kind of go on to to worship this particular character in a way that I think we could say is is pretty deeply Christian. But unlike Catholic nuns, the Snape wives had a much more carnal relationship to their shared spiritual husband. They see him as someone who is a domineering master in perhaps more of a BDSM sense and someone who really gives a lot of sexual purpose to their lives as well. The women at the center of the Snapists, Rose, Tanya, and Conchita, all had different relationships to their master, God, and husband. Rose and Tanya could easily conjure his spirit, but for Conchita, Snape was sometimes a more absent figure. I kind of feel a bit sad for Conchita because Tanya and Rose have all of these mystical experiences where they talk about, you know, Snape really like physically coming into their homes Snape whispering in their ears, giving them signs, sometimes even completely overtaking their husbands. And meanwhile, Conchita, who lives in the Netherlands, she just seems very disconnected from it all. There's a real kind of third wheel feeling around her where she just doesn't have that capacity to directly tap into Snape. The other two help her out, but there's so many 
journal entries she wrote at the time where she just talks about struggling. She just talks about how much this all means to her, but she just can't have those deep spiritual experiences like the other Snape wives can. And like all religions, the Snapists had their own specific theological beliefs. Right near the top of that list, that homosexuality is very, very wrong. And I think a big reason why they do that is a lot of the sexual activity between them and Snape takes place with the two of them having a chat. One of them will channel Snape and have this really erotic chat with the other one. And then they seem to spend a lot of time being like, oh, but it's not gay. Snape doesn't like gay people. This is extremely heterosexual. So they're they're really putting a lot of effort into policing those boundaries and making it as rigidly heterosexual as possible. Zoe understands this homophobia not only as a way for the Snape wives to reaffirm their own heterosexuality within what could otherwise be understood as a fairly queer context, but as an explicit rejection to the popularity of homoerotic fan fiction within the rest of the Harry Potter fandom. There was all sorts of, like, slash fiction with, like, you know, Harry and Snape was a popular one, or Dumbledore and Snape, you know, basically, like, whatever character combination could be perceived of, someone would have written fan fiction about it. And they made it very clear that Snape was incredibly angry about that, and it was very, very disrespectful for people to be casting him or exploring him in gay relationships. But Snapeism was not long for this world. Its death can be attributed to two primary factors, internal personality clashes and the Naval Criminal Investigative Service. So first of all, Conchita ends up just getting pretty alienated by the others. It's never like super, super, super clear exactly what happened to put Conchita off. And I think a lot of these might have just been private arguments on private chats and and we'll never find out. But then we ended up having a really, really big falling out between Rose and Tonya because Rose starts falling in love with Agent Gibbs from NCIS and starts talking about how absolutely amazing Agent Gibbs is and how she's in love with him. For those that don't know, Agent Gibbs is the main character in the wildly successful crime procedural, NCIS. And it just kind of becomes a really big fight between the two of them because, you know, it's perceived that they've just sort of lost that shared passion they had for Snape as the main person in their lives. Since then, the Snape wives have become a part of internet lore. But for Zoe, they're not just a comical detour into what's already considered to be an obsessive fandom. They're an example of what real novel religious feeling can look like in our pop culture obsessed world. And the more time you tap into them, the more you realize people like the Snape wives are just some kind of bored ladies who are dissatisfied with their life 
and they retreat into a vivid fantasy world that gives their life a lot of meaning and excitement. And you kind of think, well, why not? You know, why not entertain yourself a bit? Why not see the world as something that's a bit more meaningful and exciting? And just because I personally don't believe that Professor Snape is in any way objectively real, don't think it should stop anyone else from having that experience. As a culture, we've obsessed over the fandoms of women and girls for decades. In the 1960s, mainstream publications fretted about Beatlemania, even interviewing psychologists to try to ascertain whether this was some kind of hysterical disorder. Back in 2013, Channel 4 in the UK released a documentary called Crazy About One Direction that framed the band's teenage fans as not only fanatical, but potentially dangerous. But those kinds of framings are rarely applied to boys and men. Their interests are generally viewed as wholesome and appropriate. But right now, there is a celebrity that has cultivated a fan base amongst teenage boys that is just as expansive and obsessive as Taylor Swift's is amongst teenage girls. Andrew Tate. Welcome to the Tate PhD course. If you've bought this course, which you obviously have, congratulations, you're going to change your life for the better. I know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm fucking certified. I think at one point last year, like he said that he was like the most Googled person on the planet. My name's Robert Lawson. I'm an associate professor in social linguistics at Birmingham City University. And my research focuses on the relationship between men and language and masculinities, particularly looking at different media spaces. So TV shows, newspapers, online forums, social media sites. For the last few years, Robert has been studying the linguistics of the so-called manosphere, the collection of male supremacist subcultures that have proliferated online. But never before has there been a manosphere figure with as much of a following as Andrew Tate. He started out as a kickboxer. He was a, a really successful kickboxer, won a ton of fights. And then in 2016, he was in Big Brother. And then he was booted out of Big Brother by the producers after some allegations of domestic violence sort of came out against him. He denied those. And then from there, he sort of started to grow his media profile, particularly online. So he set up what he called Hustlers University, a sort of online learning space for other men to, you know, learn how to be kind of alpha man, how to grow their wealth, how to be, you know, fitter and, you know, healthier. But I think he's, he became popular because I think he, he spoke to these insecurities, right, that, that young men have about their own identities, about their own sense of, of masculinity. And I think that a lot of his content kind of promotes this really obvious sort of sense of consumerism, right? This, this sense of sort of high life lifestyle, right? Sort of high impact lifestyle. So he has, you know, the jets and the cars and the big cigars and the big houses and, you know, very ostentatious displays of, of wealth coupled with him being, you know, really fit and strong and muscly with lots of women surrounding him when he, you know, goes out to, you know, clubs and stuff like that. And according to Tate's many many devoted fans, they're drawn to him because of his positive messaging. 
And so he talks about, you know, taking responsibility for your life, about keeping fit, about being healthy. And those kinds of elements, again, I think, you know, kind of chime with young men. But I think the the dangerous part of a lot of what Tate's content does, you know, those kind of more positive messages act as a bit of a Trojan horse for the more negative elements. So he, you know, in my opinion, has like really problematic views round about relationships, round about parenting and fatherhood, round about dating, you know, and about the role of women in a relationship. Problematic is a bit of an understatement. Having sex with girls is all good, but how do you get them to do as you say, make you money, obey you, allow you to cheat on them in front of their face and still love you? You cannot get a girl to work for you having fucked. The PhD course is my recruitment system. I don't mention webcam until after I've had sex with the girl. I teach guys how to tell a quality woman from a bad woman. I've got like a, fa- a foolproof test that never fails ever. It's never failed ever, ever, ever. And I think one important thing to note is how essential the specific language that Andrew Tate and other Manosphere influencers deploy. And I think before I started kind of working on this area, my main thinking was that language was used to exclude women specifically, that it was used to dehumanize them, denigrate them, exclude them, and and really misogynistic and, and sort of sexist kinds of ways. And so when you look at a lot of the sort of terms of reference that get used to talk about women, you know, they're they're almost exclusively negative in orientation. But what I was surprised to find was that within the manosphere, unless you sort of occupy a very narrow kind of definition of what it is to be a man, they're also really exclusionary towards men as well. You fit into this really narrow mold of what it is to be a man and a man. And as soon as you kind of fall outside of that, then you're a target. You're not wanted and you're kind of pushed out to the side as well. The obsession that many teenage boys have with Andrew Tate is becoming a serious problem in schools. I received an email from an educator in Quebec talking about all the misogynistic and homophobic things his students say, directly inspired by their love of Tate. That's something Robert Lawson has heard about as well. But I'm certainly aware of a lot of teachers becoming really concerned, um, both in the UK and further afield, about the effect and influence that, that someone like Tate has had and starting to, you know, develop, you know, CPD courses, um, you know, having assemblies and meetings with, with, uh, with students about the kind of really corrosive influence that someone like Tate can have. Earlier this year, Andrew Tate was arrested and charged with rape and human trafficking by Romanian authorities, charges that he denies. But the accusations have done little to stifle his popularity. I think he preempted a lot of it, you know, really early on in December last year. You know, I think he um, posted up on Twitter, you know, like the agents of the Matrix are, are out to get me. And he had already been, I think, really slowly sort of drip feeding some of these more sort of conspiracy theory based elements that the government was out to get um the government wants to close him down the government didn't like what he had to say that he was speaking truth to power and that needed to be closed down but certainly i think among a lot of his his fans these are seen as as sort of drummed up charges as as false allegations as um you know not having any legal merit so what should we make of all of this For one, 
I think there's been a kind of strange panic around fandoms in the last few years, but mostly directed at the ones that girls and women enjoy. Dr. Zoe Alderton agrees. When we look at the reaction that a lot of people have had to the Snape Wives, it's not just, oh my god, we all know Harry Potter isn't real, this is stupid. It's this argument that it's gross that middle-aged women have a sexual identity, that they're open about their sexuality, that they're creative about their sexuality. People reading these things, their their knee-jerk reaction is, oh, my God, that is disgusting. I don't need to hear about your sexual fantasies. The pretty common counter-argument to that is, well, how many people are obsessed with sports stars? I think there's definitely a double standard there. Today, Taylor Swift might have the biggest fan base amongst girls. And while there's definitely nasty stories out there about Swifties going after journalists and critics, there's nothing inherently dangerous or terrible about being a Taylor Swift fan, even one that's a little obsessed. But someone like Andrew Tate is a different story. His rise and his appeal to boys and young men speaks not only to the widespread need for community and a system of beliefs that we've been talking about all season, but how those impulses can be twisted towards something sinister. This is the last episode in our season about cults, and I've been thinking a lot about that word. It's become a bit of a cliche to label anything and everything a cult, and of course, academics haven't even been able to find a consensus on how to talk about these groups. Now, I don't know if I'm any closer to understanding what the difference is between a religion and a cult. And yet, I do think it's useful to call things like MLMs and QAnon groups cults. It helps us clarify the role that control and spiritual belief play in movements that we would otherwise think of as secular. But I also think it can be a word that inhibits discourse. In Amanda Montel's book, Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism, which is where we started this season, she writes about the concept of a thought-stopping cliché. Think, it is what it is, or this too shall pass. Language and phrases that leave us with nowhere further to go. She argues that these are ever-present in cult-like environments. And in some ways, I think the word cult, when improperly deployed, can be a sort of thought-stopping cliché of its own. When something gets labeled a cult, it can lead us to stop thinking deeply about it, We feel like we know everything we need to already. If there's one thing I've learned this season, it's that the word cult should be the beginning of a discussion, not the end of one.
That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Zoe Alderton, Robert Lawson, Caitlin Tiffany, and many others. This is the final episode in our season on cults, and I hope you've enjoyed it. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me, Noor Azria, and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Annette Edgefor. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Puglesi. And our music is by Nathan Burley. You can listen to Commons ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything else, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. And you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join.